Welcome to MetaVisions, the official podcast of the Warden Post. I'm your host, Richard Storey, and I'm delighted to be talking today to E. Michael Jones. Mike, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. My it's pleasure. a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Mike, you are the editor of a magazine called Culture Wars magazine, quite a unique magazine. Um, and, of course, you're the author of a number of, I think, very important books, um, Slaughter of Cities, uh, Libido Dominandi, um, and, and, of course, most recently, Logos Rising, which I'm sorry to say I haven't actually read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, so your magazine, Culture Wars, why is it called Culture Wars? Do you think we're in a, a culture war night right now? I mean, if you walk down the streets of Kenosha or uh, Chicago, maybe, or or if you're in a group larger than six people walking around London, surely everything will be fine. Everything's all right, isn't it, Mike? No, it's not fine. We're, we're right now in the middle of a revolution in the United States of America. And the point of this revolution is to depose Donald Trump. Uh, we are in this revolution because uh, what I tried to talk about 30 years ago uh, got ignored. So to get back to uh, the basics, I started off as a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College, uh, and at that point was struck by the parlous state of Catholic education in the United States. Uh, St. Mary's is across from Notre Dame. There was this kind of foul smell in the background that I couldn't quite place, and it turns out it was uh, sexual degeneracy. Uh, because of things that had happened before I arrived there. Uh, one of the most significant I describe at the end of Logos Rising, which uh, turns out to be autobiographical, uh, and that is the abandonment of Thomism at the University of Notre Dame as the, uh, the uh, philosophical uh, default setting of, of that university. Uh, in 1953, the, uh, Notre Dame adopted Eterni Patris, which was the encyclical of Leo XIII uh, adopting Thomism as the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. Notre Dame said, if, you be if you're serious about being an educated Catholic, you have to come to Notre Dame because we teach Thomism. Uh, within 20 years, uh, that uh, arrival, the arrival of Logos in the New World was strangled in its cradle uh, by the two men, Ernest McMullen, who was chairman of the philosophy department, and uh, uh, Theodore Hesburgh. Now, that led to sexual corruption. There's no question. Once you abandon uh, Logos, you have no guide for your actions. And uh, over this course of time, uh, Hesburgh uh, cut deals with the Rockefellers, uh, stole the university from the Catholic church. He was holding it. The order held it in patrimony to the Catholic church, but he stole it and privatized it. A privatization being a, 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 a manifestation of theft has become very common, uh, became common in England after the Thatcher era. Uh, and as a result, uh, morals degenerated. So I got fired because I was against abortion, because the feminists had taken over uh, the college where I was teaching. At this point, I became what was an education? I, I became an educational reformer. Uh, basically, I was going to expose the degeneracy of Catholic education in the United States in the hope that there would be a reform 
and uh, that the reform would regenerate the Catholic people in the United States. Uh, that did not happen. And because it did not happen, we are now faced with revolution. We are now faced with rioting. We are faced with, with murder in the streets, in the streets of Kenosha, in the streets of Portland. These cities, Portland has been taken over by revolutionaries. All of these people that we're talking about here, whether we're talking about Antifa or whether we're talking about Black Lives Matter, they are all a function of bad education. We're talking about the effect, <clears throat> the effect of bad education over a period of 30 to 40 years. I arrived here in South Bend 40 years ago. All of that thing has been ignored. And as a result, we had basically the takeover of our institutions by revolutionaries. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, Roger Kimball wrote a book called Tendered Radicals in the early 90s, which tried to deal with it, but was inadequate because he had outdated categories. It was basically Marxism, tried to portray these people as Marxists. They were not. Uh, what happened over this period of time is that Foucault, Michel Foucault and other people redefined what the left meant. And it no longer dealt with economics. It dealt with sexual liberation. So the, the deal that Foucault made with the oligarchs is give us unlimited sexual liberation and we will not complain about your economic system. That is the new left. That is the situation that exists right now. Those people have taken over, and now we have a situation uh, where the oligarchs, uh, the tech oligarchs like Google, are uh, uh, the, the foundations like the Open Society Foundation, George Soros, are funding revolutionaries in the street like Antifa and Black Lives Matter. That's because those people have been brainwashed by bad education. I'm talking about the foot soldiers on the street, the proxy warriors uh, on the street. So to get back to culture wars, okay, uh, at a certain point, this magazine was started as Fidelity. It was basically a Catholic magazine that was going to talk about educational reform, about the state of the church. And then I was appointed uh, biographer of John Cardinal Kroll of Philadelphia. Uh, this is in the early 90s. So they let me into the archives, a <clears throat> hundred cubic feet of documents that no one had ever seen before. And as I went through the archives, I began to understand the true story of the 1960s, what really happened in the 1960s, and how this was war against the Catholic Church. You can read that uh, book. It's John Cardinal Crow and the Cultural Revolution, all based on original first documents um, from the archives of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. But it led me to understand uh, terms like social engineering, for example. And so it, it, that book enabled other books. So the one book it enabled was Libido Dominandi, which is Sexual Liberation and Political Control, which talks about the uh, use of sex as a form of control. And the other book was uh, Slaughter of Cities, which talked about urban renewal as ethnic cleansing. So at this point, I, I realized that we're not talking about an internal battle within the Catholic Church. We're talking about something bigger here, okay? The Catholic Church is the enemy of the oligarchs. It's the enemy of the WASP ruling class elite and the Jews after World War II. And there was a war against them. So it was <clears throat> the best paradigm I could think of was Kulturkampf in Germany, <clears throat> which after German unification under Prussian auspices, uh, you could not be a Catholic and be a good German. 
uh, it was outside forces. Now in Germany, they there were no people, no collaboration from within the church. This was the difference. There were people within the church, a fifth column within the church, epitomized by people like Father Hesburgh, who were willing to open the gates and let these people in. That's when I changed the name to Culture Wars because that was the best approximation I could come to to Kulturkampf. Because all of these things have been ignored, everything has been ignored. We are now in the middle of a revolution. Uh, because of generational accumulation of bad ideas. And this rev revolution is going will possibly and probably likely lead to a civil war in November. There's probably going to be a civil war here in November. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so much of what you see actually resonates a great deal with another guest we had on recently, Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, he's a, a former leftist, and uh, yeah, he 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 completely agrees with you. And uh, two avenues, two avenues you've left for me to potentially discuss with you. One, how the left has changed, and and uh, uh, the liberal economics of of the West, and what what, is, what that's doing to our culture, and also the the sexual degeneracy. There's another avenue we could explore there. Um, First of all, I'm interested to know, now on this show, we are very much against the the worst parts of modernity and modernism. We, we don't make any bones about it. We're happy to discuss this. We consider ourselves to be quite meta-modern. Now, you wrote a book, Degenerate Moderns, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here. Correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the thesis I get from this book is that modernity is basically born out of um, a desire for sexual liberation. Uh, a sort of liberalism where it's, it's not just about individualism. It's not just about um, trying to assert minority beliefs over what was the public belief of the Catholic Church before. It was pretty much down to sex. Um, I mean, let's talk about that for a moment. In, in what sense do you think modernity is just about sexual degeneracy? Well, th this uh, happened um, toward the end of uh, uh, Fidelity. Uh, it, I, I was, I think it was 1987, uh, a book on Sartre came out and uh, nobody knew who Sartre was anymore. I mean, Sartre, when I was at the college, I mean, everybody, you, you talked about him, you read his stuff, and suddenly he had disappeared from the. So I remember having difficulty reading certain passages in Sartre. And I, so I started reading the biography, and it turns out he's taking amphetamines, and he's writing for 18 hours at a stretch. Well, maybe that explains why I had such difficulty reading what he was saying. Maybe that had an effect. And I started to think, well, maybe the biography is a way into all of these ideas. And, and at that point, I came up with a formulation of an idea. And basically, there are two options in life. Either you subordinate your desires to the truth or you subordinate truth to your desires. And if you subordinate your desires to the truth, well, then your biography isn't all that important. But if you do the opposite, your biography is the most important thing of all, of anything. And so at this point, I started going through the people that I saw as kind of pillars of modernity. So Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead pretended to be a, 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 a well, she was an anthropologist, okay? Um, she pretended uh, to uh, have this great insight into Samoan culture, 
she said that uh, Samoans didn't take sex uh, seriously. This was all draped in the uh, in the mantle of science. And if you looked into the biography, well, it turns out that she had committed adultery before she went to Samoa. And it turns out that there was an Australian who uh, showed up in Samoa later and said she made it all up. Well, so it turns out that the biography is the most important thing you need to know about coming of age in Samoa. You can forget about anthropology. I, 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 I called it Blue Lagoon Anthropology based on that, that famous movie about, you know, finding yourself in the state of nature. And I, I found that this, uh, I could generalize from this to other people as well. And so that was basically degenerate moderns culminating in Sigmund Freud and that whole uh, act of mystification. Uh, Freud, in, in a sense, knew that his biography was his Achilles heel, and so he destroyed his papers. He deliberately engaged in misdirection to direct you away from his biography to, toward pseudoscientific concepts like the Oedipus complex, which means that we all desire to sleep with our mothers or our sisters. And I remember thinking, is that one of the top desires in my mind? It doesn't seem that way to me. Uh, but it turns out that uh, Freud did have a, 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 an erotic uh, attachment to his sister-in-law and did consummate that. And I think that explains the Oedipus complex better than some type of scientific explanation. That's the gist of that, that book, Degenerate Moderns. Dionysus Rising is the second book in that trilogy, and it deals with music as a function of biography. And Wagner begins with Wagner, uh, Nietzsche, Schoenberg, and uh, rock and roll, all of which uh, the trajectory that music takes uh, because it's a function of your biography. And so in, in many ways, I uh, saw so Wagner is like the classic example of the sexual libertine, the sexual revolutionary. But then we have Schoenberg, where in many ways we have the opposite of, what, of that because uh, Schoenberg is... He's a Jew. He's living in uh, Vienna. He converts to Christianity, but they're living la vie bohème, the, the bohemian lifestyle in, in Berlin. His wife has an affair with a painter. Well, at this point, he is so mortally wounded that he's going to take revenge on Western music. And that's what he does, all from that wound about uh, his wife's infidelity. So again, I, 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 the, the biography serves as, a, as an entry into this type of stuff. The final one was uh, Living Machines, which was my attempt to talk about Bauhaus architecture, the fall of communism. It also, uh, a final chapter on uh, the, a comparison between uh, Frank Gehry, the postmodernist, and Thomas Gordon Smith, the classical architect from Notre Dame University. That breaks down ethnically or religiously because what happened after everybody got sick, sick of Bauhaus boxes is that it went in two opposite directions. Frank Gehry uh, is Jewish architecture. It is anti-Logos. Thomas Gordon Smith is a Catholic. He went in the exact opposite direction. He went back to Vitruvius, back to traditional architecture. But it broke down, again, according to identifiable lines and according to identifiable principles. And that's the whole point of the trilogy is basically to demystify all of this modernist mumbo jumbo about scientific breakthrough and all this other type of stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, good answer. I mean, that, that is something that I love about your books, your material. You have this, I mean, not only do you have a good knowledge of, of, um, of, of high culture and all the figures involved in you know, music, architecture, the various things you spoke about just then, um, but philosophy also. And you, you're you very good at uh, finding the links. You know, you, you look at the biography, you look at their life, and you, you find the links between these thinkers. And you also find, um, and of course, you know, from a Christian perspective, as a Catholic as well myself, I, I, I agree with you on this. You're very good at finding why, why these, these figures in history these revolutionaries, why they are anti-Christian. You're very good at finding out, you know, what is their big sin? And what's the big sin in their life? Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 looking, I'm looking now, Mike, at the, the, the state of America. I'm looking at, you know, what, what's happening with Black Lives Matter and Tifa, as you've just said, and the, 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 the state of things. Now, I mean, we, we've been so atomized I mean, we, we've been really reduced to, to, to nothing. You know, we have no, no public creed anymore. Um, certainly, I mean, it, it doesn't feel that way in, in the UK. I'm quite sure it's the same situation over there in America. And all we have left is these you know, small, warring, ideological uh, identities left for us. Um, you know, what, what, what is the big sin? What is the big sin of Western culture today, that that we, we we're so terribly vulnerable. We're vulnerable to pornography and all the different things that you that you mentioned. All the attack vectors on our soul that are employed against us. The big sin is the rejection of logos. Uh, that's why I wrote Logos Rising. Uh, it's actually I had to use that term to write the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Because I couldn't, you couldn't explain that situation at all without the term logos. And so, after I wrote that book, that, that was kind of the history of anti-logos. And then people kept saying, "Well, what is logos?" So I had to write the history of logos as the opposite of the history of anti-logos. But the the point, the great sin, of course, uh, is the original sin, and the original sin is the rejection of. Logos, but uh, specifically of your position in the universe. Who, you're a creature. Uh, and Satan says, well, if you, you'll have knowledge and you'll know uh, good and evil and you'll be able to distinguish between good. You'll be something above than what you think you are. You'll be a god. You'll be like gods. Well, that's, that's always a temptation. And, and the main thing that has allowed this in our cultures science uh, what what comes comes to be known as science we are now suffering under this dictatorship of science what do you think the covid crisis is it's basically some scientist some 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 guy who is completely lacks any type of integrity or credibility and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the guy in England who was the the, the go-to guy was his name was it named Neil Ferguson was this Neil Ferguson ah uh, yes that's right Neil anyway, Ferguson Neil, yeah. Neil Ferguson is going to lock us all down and he's going to go have an adulterous affair on the side and nobody's supposed to find out about this well this this shows you the complete hypocrisy of this whole covid epidemic now 
there may be, there may be, I th personally think there is a COVID virus. I personally think it was weaponized in a, in a lab in Wuhan, in China with American money paid for by Anthony Fauci and his organization. So I think it's real, but you still have to distinguish between categories of reality, namely the virus and categories of the mind, namely how to deal with the virus. And what we're seeing here now is basically uh, a one more facet of the war on Donald Trump. It's very simple. The point of COVID in the United States is to, to, to depose Donald Trump. Uh, by wrecking the economy, by destroying the livelihoods of the last independent sector of the economy, which was basically the bottom uh, uh, independent contractors at the bottom of the economy, the people who cut your hair or, you know, you put money in their hand after they do something for you. This is supposed to be destroyed because they support Trump and because they are independent, too independent for the oligarchs who want, who want to rule us. That's the abuse of science that is being taken place in our day. If it's science, you can't argue with it. This is another reason I wrote Logos Rising, because you had people like Bertrand Russell, who uh, basically started off as a philosopher and ended up as a popularizer, who would tell us what is ultimate reality. Well, science is in possession of ultimate reality, so therefore you can't say anything about it. Well, the point of I'm trying to make in, no, Logos is ultimate reality. And it turns out that Logos is more complicated than we thought. I mean, we know that we always kind of felt that Logos was God or that God was Logos. But now it turns out it's three people talking to each other all the time in eternity. And it's a complicated picture of what Logos is. And if you don't get that part right, you're going to be left behind. And the classic uh, group that was left behind was Islam because they couldn't understand uh, the development of Logos that took place with the Gospel of St. John. So we are now being locked down because there are people who call themselves scientists and they exercise tyrannical control over our lives. Well, we can't allow this anymore. I mean, there's a simple uh, common sense question that we have to ask ourselves. Suppose you have two scientists who come up with two different opinions, which is exactly the situation. The Germans have led the world in this rebellion against the COVID lockdown, both on the popular level in Berlin and also on the scientific level. And they contradict all of the Bill Gates, Fauci crowd over here. Well, what are we supposed to do? Throw up our hands? Well, no, that we have logos. We can make judgments about who is telling us the truth and who is not telling us the truth. And I think that's the importance of this book and of bringing us back to the real fundamentals of Western civilization, which is logos, not science. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I, I see it very much in those terms as well. Uh, we, we, we need to return to Logos. And if, if people are not exactly sure what that means, I think deep down they do know what that means after just a little bit of explanation. When we talk about Logos, we're talking about the word at the end of, you know, things like biology. It's where our word logic comes from. It means word. It means speech. It means all, all of these, all of these rational categories that we uniquely have as humans and therefore how we're able to you know, understand, understand, you know, natural law and things like that. Isn't that right, Mike? That's right. That's right. We live in an orderly universe. 
and it's much more orderly than we can perceive, even from uh, normal everyday experience. The more we look into it, the more orderly it is. And so the first thing that you have to clear out of the way if you're going to return to Logos is the English ideology, which is now basically Darwinism. Uh, the, the four atheists uh, that had their, their uh, 15 minutes of fame back about 10 years ago are Darwinists to a man. And as a Darwinist, you can make the most preposterous statements in the world and they will, and, and they will demand your, uh, your submission to these statements because they claim the mantle of science around it. And so we have uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett has made what is without a doubt one of the most stupid statements in the history of philosophy when he said that the universe created itself out of nothing, ex nihilo, or something very small. <laughs> that is preposterous. Okay, first of all, the universe cannot create itself, period, because it would have to exist before it existed. And that's impossible, professor. Secondly, out of something very small, well, it already exists. You're already talking about existence, so you're begging the question here. This is preposterous. And you have to stand up to this claim. What is the fu fundamental metaphysical claim of, of the Darwinism? It's basically that something can come from nothing. No, it, it's impossible. That is completely yeah. impossible. Parmenides you know, made, made one of the great breakthroughs in the history of philosophy when he said, that which is cannot come from that which is not. That is true. That is absolutely true. And anyone who tells you the opposite is wrong, which means that Dennett and Hitchens and Dawkins are wrong because they all say that something, whether it's a wing or an eye or something like that, came from nothing. It can't. It's impossible. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, I've had this conversation numerous times before. They'll, they'll say things like, well, and I think this this is what Dennett was trying to say in a really bad way. They'll say, oh, well, you know, uh, particles come into existence all the time because nothingness, nothingness is such an unstable condition. Um, <laughs> they're still talking about things that exist. They're still talking about existence, and you just you just end up going around in circles. But um, I think these people really need to to read their Aquinas. Um, but I mean, all of that aside, I mean, okay, okay. They they want to be very religious about it, and you know, when you look at the the state of campuses across the West, they are very zealously religious. These these people. Um, Okay, fine. They want to have that, and uh, you know the the modern modern system of government. It uh, it has the the scientists, and they are effectively like the priests uh, of of this you know this new kind of liberal religion, whatever you want to call it. Um, but you know, I, I think I think you've really hit it on the head. There is this is about a rejection of of, of logos, and as soon as as soon as you you do that. You, you you have to embrace the, the, the chaos, and in a sense, that is what the the modern state is all about. It views man in completely different ways to to, to we do, Mike, as Christians, as, as Catholics. The, the modern conception of man is we're all, you know, red in tooth and claw, 
as Hobbes said, and we, you know, we, we're all uh, in a, a war against each other. It's dog eat dog. Um, uh, we, we're all, you know, we've all got our different ideas and different beliefs and that kind of thing. So, you know, we we need, you know, we need the the state to to be the middleman for all our interactions, don't we? We need, uh, and and of course they need their scientists, you know, to determine the, you know, the yes. material conditions well, of things. Yes. Well, if there's no logos, yes, of course you do. Of course you do. You need the state to be a tyrannical policeman that will force you to do what they think is good because there is no objective form of good. And truth is the opinion of the powerful, as Thrasymachus said. Okay, but there's a big if there. If there is no logos. Well, there is logos. And the fact that we are talking right now about this is proof that there is this logos and that we can come to some type of rational understanding of the world we live in. Now, that's a fact. Given that fact, there are certain political consequences that flow from that fact. And one of the consequences is we can have representative government. Because if people are capable of making these distinctions on their own, they don't need someone at the top ordering them around. They can have a, a democratic state in the, the, the what we call the American sense of that term, uh, which is basically that local communities can get together and can decide on what is the good and how to implement that good. Now, the American founding fathers had that in mind, uh, but they also had another context in mind. And John Adams brought it up when he said, we have no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. Well, it turns out that logos has, there's practical logos, practical reason, it's called morality. If you uh, ignore practical morality, uh, you will have chaos. If you ignore reason, you become irrational. If you're irrational, you have no way of organizing your own life, much less the life of the state or the community that you live in. So it's all predicated on an embrace of logos, specifically the practical logos of morality. If you throw that out, well, then uh, you are going to have chaos at the bottom and tyranny at the top. And that's the situation we've, 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 uh, we've come to, largely because of the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution overturned the idea that morality should rule our lives. If it doesn't rule your life in this issue, it's probably not going to rule your life in any issue. And at that point, you're on your way to tyranny, which is where we are now. Agreed again. We have a, a nice comment here, which summed up my thoughts exactly, exactly what I was going to say to you. It says, atheism is an excuse to break the moral law and cop out of living the virtues. Um, very much seems By the way, Aldous that Huxley, way, doesn't it, Mike? Aldous Huxley said exactly that uh, in Ways yeah. and Means. He said, my friends all became communists because they wanted to uh, engage in uh, uh, sexual liberation. That's a paraphrase, but I mean, that's pretty much what he said. He was uh, at the heart of the English intellectual aristocracy. His grandfather was the man who made Darwin. Okay, who created Darwin. So uh, he's also heavily involved in psychological warfare with M MI5, MI6 during the war, came over here, went to Hollywoods. So he and, and Brave New World, I think, is a much more prophetic book than 1984. 
in terms of predicting the future because he was there working with the people who were ready to take over uh, after the war. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And I think with the, you know, when it comes to the the, the rejection of Logos, um, it, it, it just seems so apparent that, uh, well, I mean, okay, you've only got to look at the effects of this great driving force in rejecting the, you know, the virtues, the value system, the, 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 the natural order, you know, the customs that would have developed in your society, um, you know, re rejecting that for, for sexual immorality. Uh, the great sociologist of last century, uh, J.D. Unwin, right. uh, produced, you know, volumes. And, and his conclusion was, you know, the, the, the kind of monogamous uh, marriage and courtship and that kind of thing that we had under Christendom. That's the ideal. You can you can literally rank it to see what makes a more sustainable civilization, um, and uh, you know you reject it. You go down a slippery slope, and you've got two to three generations before it really hits the fan. Right, and then you can establish a culture that is a, a, a basically a dysfunctional culture. So uh, the anthropologists have seen this: the, the more primitive um, the society, the more uh, they they are mono, the more monotheistic and the more monogamous they are, and time as time goes on, basically uh, these cultures degenerate because there's nothing to prevent them from degenerating, and so you have monotheism, and you know that God is the source of your being and and benefits, and you pray to Him. Everyone does this. Everyone every culture has a word for God. Every culture believes that God is a Father. He lives in the sky. And you pray to him and you ask him because he's superior. Well, suppose you want something that you're not supposed to have. Suppose you want to sleep with your neighbor's wife. Are you going to pray to God to that? Well, no, he's not going to grant that prayer. But maybe there's a force out there that will. And you see, this is the beginning of polytheism. And these gods become then uh, demons and they will grant you what you want. If And the price will be your independence, your ability to function as a rational creature because sin darkens the mind. And then if it gets widespread enough, it becomes institutionalized and you have multiple gods and you end up with India where you have 33 million gods and a culture that is just stuck. It is stuck. All you have to do is go to India and realize it's stuck. Or you can go to Africa. Uh, I've spent time in Africa and you start to see the effect that uh, polygamy had on development in Africa. It, it killed development. The main problem in, in Africa, um, mostly East Africa, where I've spent some time, is the inability to mobilize labor. They don't know how to do it. You know, you can come and explain something, and they just don't know how to get these things done together. Well, that's a function of polygamy. Because polygamy and polygamous cultures, you don't mobilize labor, you procreate labor. So the classic instance uh, in this regard, I was in Tanzania, I wrote a, a biography of Julius Nyerere, the Catholic president, first president and founding father of Tanzania. He was one of, his father had 17 wives. Uh, his brother had eight. Uh, Julius Nyerere said to his brother, why do you have so many wives? He said, because I need children to work the farm. 
and Nareri said, well, why don't you get a tractor? I mean, I mean this epitomizes <laughs> this epitomizes what happened in East Africa in the 20th century. In other words, you thought the people like Nareri, who was a socialist, uh, who was imbued, uh, he thought that the Great Leap Forward was a great idea. He was idolized Mao Zedong, thought that the collectivization of agriculture in the Soviet Union was a great idea. He was a socialist. And he thought all you needed was a tractor. All you needed was a tractor, and you didn't. You could go from polygamy to tractors with no intermediary steps. Well, guess what? It didn't work. And the main reason it didn't work was what happens when the tractor breaks down? Nobody knows how to fix it. It's, so I was in uh, the Ujamaa village. This was his ideal socialist village, Kamuga. And there's a pump in the middle of town. It was built by a Marinol missionary from New York. All of these Americans who grew up fixing cars in America went to Tanzania, Tanganyika at the time in the 1950s, and they all started building things. They pumped. They, they could do anything. And it was great until the pump broke down. That pump where in Kamuga has been broken for 30 years. Nobody knows how to fix it. They get their water now from a mud puddle, which is a lake during the rainy season, a mud puddle later on with water the color of coffee, full of bilharzia. It's a mess, all because they can't mobilize labor. And I think it's because of that patrimony of polygamy. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that we're sort of segueing into economics now because you've written so many fascinating things I really want to discuss with you. Uh, just a quick note, I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that uh, ancient cultures, they went from monotheism and then they degraded into various kinds of polytheism. Most people, and especially anthropologists, it, this is just something that's just assumed, but there's been so much fantastic work in Africa and, and uh, looking at other cultures, some really great books out there to show, no, in fact, we start with monotheism and for various reasons, like you say, uh, it, it changes right. like the, the that. Source, the source book on that is Wilhelm Schmidt, the divine word priest, the Ursprung der Gottesidee, multi-volumes. He spent a lot of time in Polynesia, actually did the anthropological work at the high, the golden age of anthropology and archaeology, late 19th, early 20th century. It's all there in uh, Wilhelm Schmidt's work. Mm. But you, you, you were mentioning, I mean, before in the talk that we just had, you, you were mentioning how the left has has changed. Now, we're talking about all this, all the troubles of Black Lives Matter. You know, cities cities are burning. We really are in the, the culture war. It could potentially turn to a civil war. Entirely agree with you on these things. And um, people are baffled by how the the neoliberal elites, uh, the, the the top of uh, big business, etc., uh, how they are into all of this woke capitalism stuff, and they seem to be pandering to. Um, what, what, what's now called in the West, you know, liberalism on the left. And as you pointed out, this shouldn't really be a surprise. Um, the, the, the left had its, 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 a lot of its roots in certain liberal ideas anyway. And certainly, you know, since the end of the Cold War, the left has just been co-opted by, by liberalism. And now it's all just a big materialist game. Uh, and they and they all you know gain in one way or another by having us be 
um, atomized, you know, very materialistic, that sort of thing, having a, a, a culture which does not have a, a proper shared definition of justice and a, and a system of virtues. Um, you referred to, uh, you know, the, the liberal leftists as being uh, the foot soldiers. I was wondering if you could develop on that idea a little bit. Well, the, the, I think I mentioned this, but I mean, the key figure is Michel Foucault, uh, who uh, is a Catholic and a homosexual. Well, it's one or the other. It's one or the other. You can't have it both both ways, uh, in spite of what uh, James Martin tells us, the Jesuit. Uh, it's one or the other. And so this struggle, uh, eventually the homosexual won out. Uh, now, he's because of that, he's an outsider. Oh, you're, you're an outsider. And so his books valorize the outsider. Uh, and the outsider would be the, uh, the insane. He hated, uh, he hated his father. His father was a medical doctor. His father made him uh, participate in gruesome operations like amputations and things like that. And the, the kid was appalled. Uh, homosexuality is a function of uh, father deprivation. He felt that he didn't get the love he needed from his father. And so he had the, the, ant the antithesis of the uh, Enlightenment. And we have this valorization of the outsider, which is in many ways Catholic. So even when he goes bad, it's, it's a way a Catholic goes bad, as opposed to, let's say, Derrida, who was another important figure at this period of time in American intellectual life, who was a Jew and went bad in the way a Jew goes bad, which is much more explicit in his rejection of Logos. Uh, Foucault actually talked about negative transubstantiation. It's obvious we have a, a Catholic mentality here. So we're so this concern for the victim has a resonance among Christian cultures uh, of the West. And but the problem is it's taken to an extreme. And the, the problem is that the leading, uh, the most important thing in Foucault's life is his homosexuality. That dominates his entire life. So he's written, wrote a few books in France. They were well-received. He gets invited to Berkeley to teach at Berkeley. And he's introduced to the bathhouses uh, of San Francisco. So by day he teaches at Berkeley. At night he's hanging out at the bathhouses where he's engaging in all sorts of bizarre uh, sadomasochistic rituals, probably because he's a Catholic. Because, because he knows he should be punished for what he's doing. And so you give this man the right to do absolutely anything in the world, and he'll choose to be punished because he knows there is a logos in his heart of hearts and his a rejection, even his rejection of it can't, can't destroy it. This is the man who changed the default settings of what it meant to be a member of the left and changed it from economics to sex. Not the only one, but he's one of the primary figures involved in that. The new left arose in, you know, places like uh, Berkeley dur uh, during the 60s. Uh, David Horowitz had a big role to play in that. And they took over Ramparts magazine and they sexualized it as well. It also fit into now this once you once you sexualize this, you're fitting exactly into the plans of the oligarchs. Because, as I said, sexual liberation is a form of control. It's the best form of control out there. So you have a guy like Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, the, the 
bug scientist from Bloomington, Indiana, who was funded by the Rockefellers. Now, now I cover this in uh, Libido Dominandi. Why are the Rockefellers funding the undermining of sexual behavior, morality? Well, because you can control people. And so it turns out that uh, Kinsey's main assistant is a man by the name of Wardell Pomeroy. Wardell Pomeroy is in South Bend, Indiana during World War II. He's drafted. He goes to the draft board and says, I need an exemption. Well, you have to explain why. Well, he says, because I'm involved in a project funded by the Rockefellers that will explain how to control large groups of people. He let the cat out of the bag. That's what it's about. And that's why suddenly you can have this marriage now between the oligarchs and the underclass. The lumpen proletariat uh, is what Marx would call it. Homosexuals were always part of the lumpen proletariat. These were outsiders that couldn't bring about any revolution, but they could disrupt everything. That's exactly what we have. That's what Antifa is. That's what Black Lives Matter is. It turns out that these people, uh, one of them got shot. Uh, one of the Antifa guys got shot, Mr. Rosenbaum, in Kenosha. And suddenly you have a window into this secret organization, and we find out who these people are. Well, it turns out he's a child molester. It turns out every single person that got shot by, by that, that guy, Ryan, uh, had some type of sexual deviance uh, as part of, his, uh, a part of his biography. Now, these people are outcasts. They understand themselves as outcasts, and they are enraged by the fact that society treats them as outcasts, and that's why they become revolutionaries. So what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of that project of sexual liberation as political control promoted by both the people on the top, the oligarchs, and the people on the bottom, the, the lumpen proletariat. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, I mean, I, 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 it just baffles me when uh, folks on the right that I'm talking to um, they, they seem to assume that, um, you know, the big corporate capitalist figures won't be totally sociopathic and, and, and somehow they will have, you know, real family values or something like that. And uh, they assume that um, they, they won't realize, okay, we can really benefit from something like pornography. We're really going to profit from some, you know, from 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 pornography by appealing to the the basest desires of 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 all people throughout society, um, and and so you know when when we see appeals, you know, um, or, or even you know, there's a show now on Netflix called Cuties, I think it is, and it's 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 not completely directly, but it is very strongly indirectly sexualizing children. Right, and uh, there's there there is there's a general trend towards trying to normalize pedophilia, and I mean this this is completely unsustainable. At, at, at a certain point, this this has got to stop. But I, but I'm just I'm just baffled by folks on the right who can't understand who can't understand that um, you know just just free markets. That's not necessarily the, that's not what's going to stop this. 
we need to have a cultural framework right. in place that, that's going to stop this. Yeah, I, I think what you're seeing is the, the bankruptcy of conservatism. I mean, basically, conservatism is, is an ideology that failed. First of all, it failed economically, uh, if you're talking about libertarianism, which would say that government is the enemy. And if it's not done by government, it's good. Well, this is preposterous. We have now Google is more powerful than the government of Ireland. We need, we need government to rein in these big uh, private sector workers. But this is now being used against us. Uh, under the Constitution, I have a right to free speech and assembly. But once it's a private entity, they can simply say, no, you're gone. It's over. We don't like you. And that's the end of the story because we're big and powerful. Well, that's why we need government to stay in conservatism, libertarianism, all that economic uh, individualism has shown itself completely bankrupt and completely powerless to stop all of the pernicious forces. It's an obsolete ideology. It's gone. For, it's over. It's pointless. Nobody pays any attention to these people anymore. It was killed by Donald Trump and uh, Pope Francis. The two of them killed it. So that's that that that's the problem there. You're not going to solve this problem with outdated materials, outdated uh, ideas, outdated weapons. You know, here's your um, here's your musket. Shoot down that M6, that F16 with your musket. This is what we're talking about. We have much more understanding of way, the way these things go now than we did before, and it's not going to work. Now, if you want to understand pornography, okay, and the rise of pornography, I can recommend something very simple. You Google William F. Buckley and Alan Dershowitz, and there you will see Alan Dershowitz, who is now uh, at the Harvard Law School, defending Deep Throat as an example of free speech. Okay, watch it and uh, pay attention to Alan Dershowitz. Okay, and then fast forward 50 years and there's Alan Dershowitz standing next to President Trump banning any criticism of Israel at college campuses. Now that will explain- uh, One moment, Mike. Pornography. One moment, Mike. I just want you to continue for a moment. I'm going to leave you with a question. I've just got to go and grab something. So um, what would you say to libertarians then who would say, oh, you know, having lots of government involvement in this sort of thing, uh, that doesn't sound like necessarily a Catholic thing to do. Uh, it doesn't sound like necessarily a Christian thing to do. And of course, um, you know, you want to revert to leftist ideas, you know, regarding um, you know, the labor theory of value and stuff in your writings. What's your general response to them? I'll be right back. What happened? Mike, are you still with me? Yes. Are we talking about the labor theory of value? Yeah, so I just, I just want to address some libertarian okay, arguments again, generally that are addressed again, against we're dealing, you. Again, we're dealing with this obsolete ideology of, of conservatism. Okay, now, uh, labor is the source of all value. That is a fundamental fact of economic life. Okay, Karl Marx said that. Therefore, it's wrong if you have a certain type of mentality. Now, what was wrong uh, with the labor theory of value? The, labor theory, the problem with the labor theory of value is that Karl Marx tried to come up with a price based on the amount of labor in a product. You cannot do that. 
The market is what creates the price. Okay. This doesn't, the fact that you can't come up with a price based on uh, the amount of labor in an article does not mean, does not refute the claim that labor is the source of all value. You can have wine uh, from Madeira and it's great wine and it just kind of almost by itself. You can plant a vineyard in Iceland and it's not going to work. You can spend a lot of labor and you'll get crappy wine and it won't be worth it because some places are better than others. We have to understand that. Okay. And you have a market to basically come up with those prices with a price. You cannot come up with a price, but that does not change the fact that labor is the source of all value. Now, it turns out that other people said that too. As a matter of fact, John Locke said labor is the source of all value. And Adam Smith said the labor is the source of all value right at the beginning of the wealth of nations. And Pope John Paul II also said that labor is the source of all value. Now, what do those four men have in common? Other than that, nothing. Well, why did they say it? Well, because it's true. When you have four people with completely, the only two are uh, Marx, Locke, and Smith all idolized England and the economic system of England. Okay, they had that in common, but they were complete opposite sides of the political spectrum. John Paul II is completely different. It's because it's true. There is no value without labor. And that means we have to value labor, which means that you don't destroy labor. Now, we had Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan doing their best to destroy labor. And the result is the catastrophic situation economically in the United States and England right now, because if you destroy labor, you destroy yourself. Where she got that idea, that's all this kind of weird bourgeois conservatism, anti-Marxism, anti-communism that led you into a, a, a bad economic system with bad decisions. What she did to the miners was unconscionable. You're cutting, you're, you're destroying yourself. You're cutting your own throat when you, when you destroy labor. What Reagan did in the United States with the air traffic controllers was a minor version of the same thing. First thing he did, let's get, let's tame the unions. Let's, let's, let's promote this. He didn't do it. Jimmy Carter did it, but bring in Paul Volcker as head of the Fed and he will wage war on labor by raising interest rates through the ceiling. Now this brings us to the other side of the coin. What is the opposite of labor? It's usury. And as an economic system, you have a choice. You either choose one or the other. And the confrontation comes in Merchant of Venice, where uh, Antonio uh, or Shylock says to Antonio, I'm your friend. I'd like you to lend you some money. And Antonio says, if it's breed of friends, don't lend friends money. Okay, you're not my friend because you want to lend me money. And if it's breed of barren metal, keep it. Now, barren metal is the title of my book. Shakespeare got it from the Catena Aurea. It was part of the patrimony, the wisdom of the West, of England at that time. And it's been lost. It's been lost. But I mean, the alternative is Shylock. There's only one alternative. And Shylock says, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's ewes and rams. Well, if your ducats can copulate, you don't need labor. Well, your ducats cannot copulate, so therefore you do need labor. And if you destroy labor, you're going to destroy the economy. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I 
Yeah, I mean, uh, still you will get libertarians saying things like, I mean, particularly in response to the very things you're saying regarding usury, they'll, they'll say, well, come on, come on. You, you, having government involvement in this, you're just subsidizing failing businesses. And, you know, value is, is, is just subjective. Otherwise, you know, their caricature of the idea that labor is, you know, source of value is, well, you know, some guy just goes out and digs a hole in the field. Does that have value? I, 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 I think, um, yeah, that <laughs> I think, I think they're missing. It, if you put a seed in that hole, then you'll mm. have a plant and then you'll have something to eat. So yes, digging a hole. Yes. Does have value. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think, I think there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a misunderstanding of the, the, the Christian conception of man here. And, and again, I see this is all bound up in the rejection of logos because, um, you know, if you look at Catholic social doctrine, um, the, the 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 body of Christ, the, the group together, the 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 love um, between the groups, and obviously that's something that begins in the nucleus of the family and this emerges outwards. Um, the, 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 the concept is very much that, you know, property is for sharing in order for it to really be cherished as property. You know, in, the, in this, I think, I think it was Chesterton who said, um, uh, uh, for, for a man to have a harem of, of wives is not really embracing, it's not really um, um, fulfilling marriage, because then it, it's, it's denying wives um, to others like this. Um, I mean, do do you still get a lot of gripe from libertarians about ab about this? Yeah, absolutely. They're like they'll, I'll say, labor is a source of all value, and they'll say, no, no, we have computers, we have uh, uh, <laughs> we have mechanized factories, we have computers working on the assembly line. So this is like telling me, oh no, labor is the source of all value. Hammers are the source of all value. Well, there's no contradiction between a hammer and labor. It's an extension of your ability to work. Well, there's no difference between a hammer and a computer other than a difference of degree. It's not a difference of kind. Someone had to build those computers. You have to have labor to build those computers. They enhance labor. They do not replace labor. You can try to replace labor. Uh, go to uh, any subway now in uh, New York or Chicago, and there will be a machine there to sell you a ticket. And so what do you do when you're confronted with a machine that sells you a ticket? You go and knock on the window where the man is sitting and say, how do you use this machine? Because you don't, nobody can figure it out the first time. This is part of the problem of a, a world that is trying to abolish labor. You can't do it. Can't do it. Let me, let me, let's get metaphysical for a minute here, okay? Because I'm saying we're talking about the fundamental ultimate reality, Okay. Uh, you have a block of stone, marble. You've got a man with an idea. Let's say Moses is the idea. The man is Michelangelo. You merge phase one. This is the dialectic. Hegel would call this the dialectic. But Ansich, that block of marble is real, but it's not conscious. The idea is conscious, but it's not real. You put those two things together and you have the statue of Moses that you can see in San Pietro in Vincoli in Rome, a, one of the greatest achievements of human history. 
Well, it turns out that's also labor. That's, that's art, but it's also labor. That is the whole point of human existence. In a sense, subduing nature. Not in a sense of ruining nature, but of bringing it to a higher level. That's what all of human history is. That's what your life is all about. That's what everything is about. And you can't get around that. That's it. That's the ultimate reality. Very well argues. Yeah, very good argument indeed. Um, I think to conclude, because I think we're just about running out of time, I said I would only take an hour of your time. Uh, there are no questions that I think we haven't already covered in the chat. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Mike, so we're in a culture war. We could potentially be approaching a civil war. What's the solution? Because, I mean, I, 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 I've seen, um, and certainly I've obviously been Googling you, um, you know, prior to, to our interview, and I've seen the way people have attacked you and they've accused you of um, being, to say a hater would be to, uh, you know, would be far too light. Um, and all I can see is that you are most concerned with promoting Christ, promoting the Logos, trying to introduce um, categories of love between people. When I hear you talk about the Trinity and the importance of that philosophically in European civilizations, this, this is always couched in the language of this also introduced concepts of love and a different idea about society. This is the language I hear from you. This, this is what I'm getting from you. Um, do you, I mean, would you say that that is your goal? and That is the solution. That is what the West needs right now. And how confident are you that we will see um, Christian groups uh, transcending the left and the right and trying to introduce sounder economic principles and also systems of value that both sides would, would appreciate? Yes, Logos is going to prevail in the end. There, there is no question about that. How it prevails uh, depends to a large extent on how we, res we respond to Logos. Uh, what you're talking about here, I, I am proposing Logos as the solution. The people who control the uh, the higher ends of our culture hate Logos. These are the forces of anti-Logos. That's why they hate me. Okay. Now, they engage in what we would call identity theft in dealing with people like me. They'll try and say he's he's a racist or he's a white supremacist. We know that's not true. We know that they have to come up with some type of obfuscation in order to turn people against me. To give you some indication of where that happened, it happened in St. Louis just recently. We had an orgy of uh, iconoclasm in the United States. Uh, there were a group of people that were going to tear down the statue of King Louis IX in St. Louis. And the only way they could bring it about was by engaging in identity theft. It was the Catholics who didn't want that statue torn down. The Catholics were praying the rosary there in front of the statue. But this man had to portray them as white supremacists. So the first step in winning the culture wars is to prevent identity theft and make sure you understand who you are and assert your identity. I have to assert my identity as a Catholic against all of these anti-Logos forces who are trying to turn me into a hater, hate speech, 
anti-Semite, you name it, that's the way they destroy your reputation. I'm not going to let them do it because in the end, Logos is going to prevail. Fantastic answer, Mike. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm going to let you go, but I want to know, uh, where can people find your books? Are they, are they available again on Amazon or are they still not there? Uh, you can go to culturewars.com hmm. or fidelitypress.org. I have been banned uh, from Amazon because of the forces of anti-Logos. If you want to make a connection, a secure connection, go to culturewars.com. Logos Rising is available there. It has never been available on Amazon. All of my other books are available, culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. All right, and highly recommended to our viewers. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And, Mike, once again, thank you so much for your time. It would be lovely to do it again, perhaps, sometime. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, all the best now.